You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm well. How, how are you? How's the family? How's Chutney? Uh, well, actually, we had a real dog this week. What? Yes, uh, a real dog called Dylan, who we occasionally dog sit for our neighbours. And actually, they, ah. they, they stopped being our neighbours. They moved out for a few months while their house was being done up. And, you know, it's interesting because I definitely... I, I mean, Justine did the lion's share of the work with Dylan because I was busy working, but... But, I mean, she was busy trying to work too, but I accepted that Dylan was only going to be brought on condition that I could just sort of do, have nice kind of pats but didn't have any responsibilities. <laughs> but I really, really liked having him here. It was really good for my sort of mental health. How did Chutney react to having another dog in the house? Did he, did he get jealous? I kept saying, Chutney, don't be jealous. And... Uh, <laughs> that, there was some sort of, you know, there was a few issues. I said, look, you know, Chutney, we love you as much as we did before, but, you know, mm. Dylan's just here for the day. I mean, they, they, you know, they had they had some sort of staking each other out situations going on. So was was the in- invisible dog sniffing the real dog's bum or vice versa? I don't, I don't know what you mean by invisible, Jeff. <laughs> what, what does that mean? Are you denying my reality? <laughs> and where, where does Dylan sleep at night when, when he stays? Well, he didn't you? stay actually this time. Ah, but when he does, where does well, he Well, he stay? Stay, He slept downstairs. Yeah, he slept downstairs. The, right, in the kitchen. <laughs> I know where you were sleeps I in the other kitchen. I saw where you were going and I decided to block you off. <laughs> anyway, how have you been? I've been fine. Nothing to, to report particularly. I tell you what I did do is I called a few friends in Sweden this week just to catch up. Oh, yeah, it's not been going so well. Well, what was interesting is everybody I spoke to is a kind of like-minded similar progressive yeah. sort of person and they were all extremely supportive of the swedish approach and of anders tegnell who's the epidemiologist who's so they were quite sort of defensive resp- about it were they well not even defensive i mean they just they just seem to genuinely think he's he's doing a good job you know there are definitely critics of him over there but at the same time he's he's become this sort of hero to a lot of Swedes, they were telling me that um, young hipsters are, are getting Anders Tegnell tattoos. Well, then you should get one as a young hipster. <laughs> Do you think you should get a Chris Whitty tattoo? No, I, I was going to say that the relationship between Sweden and Anders Tegnell is obviously very similar to the relationship of Britain to Dominic Cummings. <laughs> uh, not. Right. Should we talk about what we're talking on this week's show? This week, we're talking about how the coronavirus crisis has affected our reliance on the internet and digital connectivity. Over the last few weeks, lots of us have become much, much more dependent than ever on the internet. And that's obvious to stay in touch with people, work from home, shop and educate and entertain our kids. We'll be discussing how we could have been better prepared, 
how our reliance on the internet will change in the long term and how to prevent this leading to a new new forms of inequality. First, we're going to explore why Estonia, known as the world's most advanced digital society, was better placed to adapt to social distancing than most countries, given how much they were already doing online. Then we're talking to Helen Milner from the Good Things Foundation about how the last few months have exposed new divides in digital access and why she thinks it's time to treat the internet as a basic utility. And then we're talking to Stanford economist Nick Bloom about why he thinks the shift to home working will continue after the crisis. And our cheerful person this week is former House of Commons Speaker John Burko. We're going to be speaking to him about his career, what it was like to be Speaker, what he's planning to do next. And... He, he's he's a man with a, a lot to say. Um, so we, we he's a man not a good, few words. He's not a man of few words. You're quite right. I mean, he, he'd be good if he ever needed to filibuster. Uh, because just we had a minute. A, he'd be good on a just good, a minute. He would be good on that. We had such a good time chatting to him. The conversation went on somewhat longer than we were expecting. So this this is a taster, and we will put out the full interview as a special episode later in the week. Order, order. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason for Jeffel this week is our friend Gavin Osborne, who uh, performed live with us on stage. He came on and he sang uh, a song and Ed, you joined in in the middle eight. He roped you in. It was uh, a great duet that the two of you did. Um, He has released a song called Born in the NHS, which is raising money for a charity called Above and Beyond, which is based out of Bristol, and uh, it's it's extra money for patient care and, and so on in NHS hospitals. And it's fantastic, and I'd love it if everybody bought a copy of it, because it's such a brilliant. great cause, and, and Gavin is fantastic, and it's a, a brilliant song, and, you know, we've all been going out and clapping for carers, and it's a song that really taps into that, that sort of pride in the NHS. It's really good, and to find it, we'll put um a link in the in the description of this episode but also if you just google gavin osborne no e on the end born in the nhs you'll be able to find it quite easily so that's my reason to be cheerful this week that is a great reason to be cheerful it is and it's just a pound but you can pay more if if you want to good i know you have a reason to be cheerful that you're you're well i've got two actually no, no i've got two the first is um i think we sh- our reason to be cheerful this week one of them should be joel pierce who makes his, oh. his program going. And it is, is his birthday today. Let's be honest, he would not have chosen to spend his birthday with us necessarily. No. Um, uh, we've done absolutely horrendously at failing to remember that it was his birthday today. Um, I think we should do a massive cheer. He, he does an absolutely brilliant job on this program. He does all the research. He, he's, he's, a, he's, I, I think we can agree that he was, he's just a brilliant asset. He, he, it wouldn't be happening without him, would it? No, no, he's, he's a, an absolute diamond. The weird thing is, as we're talking to each other we're on a Zoom call, I can also see Joel. And it's very difficult for me to be this earnest and complimentary about somebody and, and have some kind of eye contact at the same time. But you did a great job there. We appreciate well, it greatly. You. We both and feel it- humiliated that we didn't know it was his birthday. And we're hoping that this goes yeah. some way to, to rectifying that. I mean, it puts my birthday faux pas in relation to you, I can't help saying, in some kind of perspective. <laughs> i mean at least you got a cake late and okay it was a bracket but i mean at least it was so it's what you're saying now that he's got no chance of getting a late cake from you no i this, think this will true. suffice no, he, he definitely no 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 i'm, I'm i think <laughs> right. he's definitely in the he's definitely in the game now the other reason to be cheerful is i talked some months ago about some trainers which enable you to um run faster and i purchased some and I'm, it's the first for the podcast i'm going to I'm going to try them on, on the podcast. This is great. I was telling you before we started recording, a very popular genre on YouTube is unboxing videos where now, people get new things, including trainers, fearful. and take them out uh, live and people get very excited. So you're doing that for our podcast. You could be tapping into a whole new audience for us here, Ed. Why are you, why are you fearful? That, well, I, I've got to say they're very odd material. I mean, they're like, I hadn't I hadn't actually seen them obviously up close. They're like sort of, they're very thin material on top mm. and then quite thick on the bottom. Now, I'm fearful they're going to be too small because they, they go small and I wasn't sure what size to order. And as I am putting them on, they are indeed too small. 
No, but you you ordered half a size too big, didn't you? Yeah, but that, but half a size too big is not big enough. Um, oh. So that is quite disappointing. They're extremely odd. I've got to say, they they, they feel extreme. Ooh. They, sorry, are you all right? Uh, you yeah, falling no, over? Dropped, I just dropped the phone. <laughs> the problem is. Um, anyway, well, that, that, so I'm, I'm glad we had the Joel reason to be cheerful because it's a slight disappointment, really. Well, I very much enjoyed seeing your Space Age trainers and you get to do a whole new unboxing in a few weeks when the new pair arrives. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're going to start this week in Estonia with Annette Numa, who is a digital transformation advisor at eEstonia, which advises policymakers around the world on Estonia's digital approach. Hello, Numa. And before we get into it, uh, do you want to tell us how lockdown has been for you? Hello, I'm very happy to be here today. Uh, I mean, it's been also challenging for everyone, I would say, and something new that we are experiencing for the first time ever. Uh, but I would also say that not much has changed. Just the, the one fact that I've been able to now to be more often in the nature, um, to go to my cottage house more often because I can have Zoom meetings wherever I am in the world. Were your meetings not all on Zoom anyway in Estonia? But that's what we're going to get onto. You are the most advanced digital society in the world. And that, and I must say, reading about Estonia made me incredibly excited about what you've managed to do. But were, you, were, you, were, you, were lots of your meetings on Zoom already? Um, they were partly, but we still like to see people as well physically as right. well. <laughs> right. And even being in a, a, a cottage, a somewhat remote rural cottage, you would have good uh, broadband access and good speeds. Yes. So this is very important before you start building uh, digital society, which we started already uh, since 1994. That was a year when the first decision by the parliament uh, was signed that it's time to start building the state of technology. Can you imagine? Wow. I was born wow. in 1994. So uh, since that time, we said, OK, um, if you want to have these kind of services online, you also need to provide people access to Internet. And and by the day, uh Almost 100% of Estonia has been covered uh, by very great internet connection. Uh, we have so many islands here, by the way, if you ever happen to visit. There are so many tiny ones. Um, there might be only like five, ten people living there. Uh, so that's why good internet connection was very much needed uh, so that these people could like actually live there and not having to waste their money and time by going to, uh, to the city to get something done. And and what are the other factors that make Estonia a digital society? Where where did the drive behind it come from and, and what was important in building that digital society? So if if you think back to our uh background, uh where we came from, we regained our independence at nineteen ninety one. We were under the Soviet Union. It wasn't the easiest time for us, obviously. So um, when we regained this independence in 1991, actually, we realized that we're lacking of resources in many, many sectors. So our government at that time said that there has to be different ways to go. Um, I mean, we didn't really see any examples from any other country that time, but we were like, OK, but maybe actually digitalization and technology is able to help us here. And then today I can honestly tell you that this really has been a huge success here. And talk to me a little bit about how that developed over the years. I know under uh, 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 Thomas Hendrik Gilvers, who was uh, president there for 2006, 2016, for, for a whole decade, a lot happened uh, sort of with him being the driving force behind it. Uh, what, what else has Estonia made digital and what, what were the priorities? Today, honestly, you can do everything except only two things uh, that are still happening on paper. Have you guys heard about this? Two things in Estonia that still happen on paper. Birth, birth, birth re and death. Registering no, births no, and registering no, deaths. No, uh, when someone is born here in Estonia, I'm very happy to say that everything happens online. Of course, you can't re really give a birth online, but uh, all these kind of registration things will happen uh, still online. So at, at the hospital, they register a baby uh, by the person I go. The birth education goes online. The parents can also register a baby a name online without having to go anywhere. Okay, I've got it. Ma marriage, divorce, and the transfer of p property. You got it. I'm afraid I read. I'm afraid I read. I read it from a briefing. Sorry. Yes. So, so you you read three things. Um, I'm happy to say now uh, that after the crisis, uh, we changed uh, this buying a property. 
And now we have an application called Verif. They're a company that provides an application where you can verify yourself on a phone. And then you can even buy a property without having to leave your sofa or like your your bedroom. So, so Annette, paint a picture just because I think it may be hard for our listeners to get their heads around it and maybe for us to give us just a sense of the things in your daily life that are online that maybe would not normally be, would not expect it to be. Okay, um, let's, let's take a case in that side um, that... Um, my colleague uh, in the morning at 9 a.m. is sending me um, a document and, and she's asking me uh, to, that she needs my signature uh, for this document. It has to be on her email um, in the next 10 minutes maximum. Uh, what I could do from my side here is that I just open my laptop here, I open the document and I do a digital signature. Let's say now that we would have parliamentary elections also happening today here. Um, I do not have to go and try all the way to any kind of polling station. Uh, what I do here is that I just open an application on my computer. I log into the system by either my mobile ID or electronic ID card. And I see um, a, like a name of the candidate I would like to vote for. And I just click there, I confirm and I use my pin number two and I encrypt my vote. And this will be sent to the polling station without my name on it. And all of the sudden in the next few minutes, I have voted without having to do anything. And just in terms of the recent situation with the pandemic, how has it gone in terms of, we've talked about home working, but what about homeschooling? So I'm very happy to say this. This is well. This has been one of our biggest win here um, for for many years. That we have a wonderful e-school system. Um, as I said as well, I, I finished high school now approximately like seven eight years ago. So not long time ago. Um, and and when I was in school in high school already, I was able to use already e-school systems. Imagine. So it's been also uh, happening for like the past fifteen years already since we have had the systems. So for for, for geeks, um, surprisingly, they are doing good. I mean, of course, they miss their friends and everything, but all these classes and, and everything is fully happening online. But one very positive thing that I also wanted to mention here, um, also, there are still families um, who might have like, let's say, around um, three or four geeks at home. And and right now, the parents will also have to stay at home, obviously. Um, they have to work remotely from home. And I don't think there are many families who have more than six computers at home. So we started this kind of movement. Um, they, they even created this kind of community where everyone who had computers at home that they didn't use could offer these computers to kids uh, who did not have a computer yet. I, I, I felt this that it was a very positive thing in our society here that we, we changed now as well. Now, this sounds to lot will sound to a lot of people like a brilliant um, set of ideas and a brilliantly advanced way of going about things. To some other people, they will think when you talk about electronic signature, electronic voting, all of that, they will immediately think, or at least they will in Britain, what about privacy? What about security? What about not just data breaches, but the state having all this data on me? How do you respond to these issues of privacy and security? That's a fantastic question. I'm very happy that you asked this. Um, so we are actually using a very secure system. So as I said, everything is, is pretty much encrypted. And what we say here is that the citizen is actually the owner of its own data. So we know exactly what kind of institutions, uh, what part of information about us store. And our system is very much distributed and decentralized. So there is no institution here in Estonia who would know about my medic records, uh, my, um, let's say my, my, I don't know, my family relations, my salary information, my taxes. There is no there is no institution who knows everything about you. They know only very, very small amount of information about you. So um, the doctors, they only know the medical records, but no one else knows the medical records uh, than just the doctors. And the greatest things, uh, we, we use a principle called 
trust by design. So that means here that we try to get everything very transparent. We have this kind of fantastic thing such as logbook system. Every single time that I log into the system of my state platform, I can see a list of different institutions uh, and what kind of information they have been looking for about me. Let's say I was visiting a doctor recently and when I log into the system of my state platform and, and go there un, under the, um, as I said, uh, the logbook system there, I can see the name of the hospital, I can see the name of the doctor, and I can see exactly what part of the information my doctor was opening of my medical records. Imagine that. Wow. Would you ever get the chance, if your medical records are based on paper, to know who has seen this information? And that's where the trust is coming here, because we see that I am the boss here. I'm controlling my information. And this is so much fun to have this kind of feeling that I actually own my information and, and I can decide which government agencies are able to see my information. And I mean, you, you've told us a lot about what Estonia has done, um, much of which is very impressive. What do you think, if you had to sum up the lessons from Estonia's approach for other countries, what would you, what would you say? Try to keep everything as transparent as possible. Because, again, respecting the privacy, letting people know how these systems have been built. And, and, and one more thing maybe here is that be willing to dream very, very, like, uh, big. Because, I mean, we were such a small country. We we're just 1.3 million people here. And we came from Soviet Union, like this wasn't the most brilliant background that we had ever had, right? So you can, you can start from scratch. Uh, you don't have to be a rich country to build this kind of system. You just have to have a good leaders leading the state. And that's what we had. And again, I'm, I'm really encouraging, um, other people that are working in public sector to dream bigger and then just to, to try to do things and not to be always so afraid of failures. We were not afraid of failures, and that's why we're here today. Well, look, Annette Numa, that's a great no note to end on. Dream bigger. Don't be afraid of, uh, of, of, of failure. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Well, to talk about the situation in the UK, having heard about Estonia, uh, we're now delighted to be joined by Helen Milner, who's chief executive of the Good Things Foundation, a charity working on digital and social exclusion. Helen, thanks so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. It's great to be with you. So just to start off, Helen, can you explain what the Good Things Foundation does? Yeah, Good Things Foundation, we're a digital social inclusion charity. So we work in the UK and also in Australia. Um, so we're here to help people to be digitally included, uh, to get the basic digital skills that they need and to embed that in their lives. And we do that by working with thousands of community organisations. So community centres, public libraries, small local charities who can really reach into communities and support those local people. So, Helen, tell us, what is the scale of the problem of digital exclusion in the UK and how has that played out during the current crisis? So in the UK, we have uh, over 11 million people who uh, we think of as being digitally excluded. So that's people who, um, uh, for whatever reason, are not using the internet to its full potential. I mean, if you think about the digital divide, it's the chasm, really, that's leaving people behind. So you think of the people who are online and the people who are offline. And it's really important to understand it's not that binary. So it's not like you get a smartphone and magically you're going to be fine, right? Over 7 million people are what we call limited users. So they either use the internet very infrequently or they just use a few apps or websites at any one time. Um, their main barriers are access, motivation and skills. So on access, there's 1.9 million households. That's a lot. 1.9, almost 2 million households who um, don't have access to the Internet. So that's fixed or mobile. And that's mainly due to affordability. Um, there's over 11 million people who don't have what we call essential digital skills. But there's 7 million people, for example, who can't turn on a, an app, you know, just to make that um, a real for you. 
And motivation traditionally has been a really big barrier. So that's almost like the stubborn lot of people who say the internet's not for me, it's not relevant, they can't understand why they would want it. And actually, during um, coronavirus, they're a group of people who have now seen that the internet is really, really important. I think you coined a phrase during this crisis, which is data poverty. Talk to us about data poverty and how much of a problem it's been during this crisis. If you think about the 1.9 million people who don't have the internet at home, they probably have got um, uh, digital poverty. So they don't have devices and they probably will have very low skills. Um, But for data poverty, these are the people who, for me as well, I've been working for a couple of decades in digital inclusion, um, and they were pretty much invisible to me. So these are the people who probably have got a secondhand smartphone or an old smartphone um, and who previously have been using free Wi-Fi in uh, cafes or libraries or McDonald's. Um, And as soon as the lockdown happened and all of those places shut, they then were completely without the internet. We even have um, met people uh, during the COVID-19 crisis who are choosing between data and food. Um, One woman we met um, actually uh, had reduced her and her children's uh, meals to just two meals a day so that she could put data on the one smartphone the family was sharing so that the children could do homeschooling. Jesus. Um, what, what, what has been done so far to address these issues, um, Helen? And, and what more would you like to see done? Obviously, that's a big question. Yeah, so because of COVID-19 and because we saw that people were just suddenly cut off, so both the people with data poverty, but also those people who were you know, locked in, uh, who were shielding, particularly those who were shielding that were uh, socially and clinically vulnerable, um, that they no longer could, you know, could uh, connect with friends and family. Um, uh, but this also includes people who have never used the internet. Um, so working with Future.now, that's an industry-led um, coalition, we've created a campaign called Devices.now. Um, so that's to get low-cost tablets with a SIM card in it and with support from thousands of community organisations across the country into the hands of people who are digitally excluded. So we've so far we've managed to deliver 2000 of those tablets and that support um, to those people but we really could do a lot more this has been entirely funded uh, through businesses and pro bono uh, by Good Things Foundation and all of the community organizations involved on the ground um so that's something that we did really quickly so, so given how important digital connectivity is and how reliant we are on it is is there a case for treating it as a basic utility and what would that look like i know labor at the last election they had this pledge about free broadband for all is is that the way to do it what what your ideas around that so i absolutely think that we should have a hundred percent digitally included nation i don't think we should ever find ourselves in the situation that we're in now where we're isolating millions of people just because they can't afford the internet um, so I think that treating the internet as a utility is a brilliant idea. So we could have, um, obviously, government could pay for it. Um, we could have some kind of, of levy within our, our own broadband um, packages. Um, I think, though, one thing I would say, because also this is about reasons to be cheerful, is that I would really want broadband to be a utility, but without the problems that we've got with um, energy. Um, So, for example, we have a poverty premium. Yeah. And so we know that the people on the lowest incomes have to pay the most so they can have access to it. Uh, they don't need to be credit checked and it won't be turned off when uh, they can't pay the bills any longer. But we know for that privilege, they have to pay more than you and I have to do. And I'd really like there to be 100% digitally included nation, but where everybody can afford it. How important is is the, the actual broadband infrastructure in this? And, and I guess also... Um equal broadband infrastructure in different parts of the country in terms of where it goes and how fast it is 
obviously broadband infrastructure is important because if you don't have that the pipes in the ground and if it's not good enough and if the quality is not good enough then people won't be able to access it um through the devices.now campaign we've also heard about people in rural areas um not being able to get access to good 4g for example so the tablets with the sim cards aren't actually very useful to them because they can't have access to decent mobile broadband either i think though that most of the people, so most of the 11 million people or the 1.9 million people who don't have access at home, um, live in urban areas where there is decent broadband. Um, and also, if we look at uh, the broadband infrastructure and, the, and we look at the investment in it. So this current government has promised £5 billion to deliver a good broadband um, infrastructure all over the country. If you gave me just 0.5% of that budget, then tomorrow I could help 100,000 people to get devices and connectivity and the skills that they need. So the investment in infrastructure far, far outweighs the investment that we really need to make sure that people are included. Do you think that the... The, the the way that we've seen reliance on technology during the last few months, do you think that will reframe it in people's minds? It'll continue and th- that will, you know, ultimately mean change for digital ex- exclusion and improvement in that area? Yes, I think that's absolutely right because um, one thing that has changed since the coronavirus crisis is that I think everybody understands how critical it is that imagine not having had the internet over the last weeks that it's just is unimaginable um you know both for work but also for you know social life for me- mental well-being for you know essential services like getting food delivered so I, I think that for those people who say, well, it's OK, people can manage without it. Those people won't exist anymore. They won't be saying it's OK, you can manage without it. Um, I think, though, whether or not it is important enough for there to be proper investment, I'm not sure that um, I've quite got that message across yet. And let's finally ask you uh, about the Jeffocracy. Let's say Jeff made you the... Minister for Digital Strategy, Inclusion and General sort of well-being. I mean, I'd Uh, like you you just just first off, I'd like to make sure the Wi-Fi is very good in my presidential compound. Yeah, (laughs) after that, it's over to you. You have carte blanche. Now, what would you what would you be saying to him that you wanted to do in your first sort of hundred hundred days? And and, and let's be honest, he's going to be a pretty hands off leader if you get him good Wi-Fi. So you've got pretty blank blank sort of check, really. Um, well, for 100% visually included UK, I've got a six-point plan. Um, number uh-huh. one is all about ambition, setting a target. You know, I want the, the supreme ruler to support that. Um, secondly, it's about making sure that we do tackle motivation. Thirdly, absolutely supporting that network of community organisations who are reaching those vulnerable people and getting them the skills we mustn't forget for about access. We need to make sure that absolutely every single household has broadband as a utility. It's affordable. And the two million people who can't afford it get it for free. Um, businesses also have a role. And finally, I want it embedded in all social policy. Please, Jeff. If you can make it a seven point plan and include my, my very high quality Wi-Fi, you're on. I'll give you a blank check for it. Helen Milner, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm delighted to say that we are joined now by Nick Bloom, who is Professor of Economics at Stanford uh, University. You've been an advocate of homeworking since long before the crisis, current crisis. Tell us about that. You know, weirdly enough, I actually did what's called a randomized control trial on working from home in C-Trip. Which, yeah, like I experimented it. So uh, if you look at the way drugs are evaluated, you'd get like a thousand patients and you randomly give half of them the actual drug and the other half the placebo and you test them and evaluate them before you, you know, unleash them onto the market. So we decided to try and do something as close as we could like that on working from home. So you've got a a large Chinese company called C-Trip, which is like China's version of Expedia. And they took uh, a thousand people in two divisions and asked them who wanted to work from home. 
Only 500 of them did. So a lot of people don't want to work from home. But of those 500, they then randomized them. <laughs> Literally, the chairman pulled a ball, like a ping pong ball out of an urn and it said even. And everyone with an even birthday. So if you're born on like the second, fourth, sixth, eighth, tenth of the month, work from home. Wow. Four out of five days a week for the next nine months. Everyone with an odd stayed in the office. And then we tracked them. How amazing. For like 18 months. And the, the jobs that they do are data entry and making phone calls. So we can measure literally what they're doing minute by minute. Uh, turns out working from home was hugely positive for productivity. So these guys, the guys at home, you know, we thought they'd just goof off and like watch, you know, the Chinese version of Oprah Winfrey or play computer games at home or fall asleep. I mean, the saying is the three great enemies of working from home are the, the bed, the television and the uh, fridge. And we thought, you know, they'd fall victim to to one of them. In the end, they were 13% more productive at home, which is like huge. That's a huge amount. That's like an extra extra day a week. Um, And then you're like, how on earth can that be? Well, it turns out, and you look at the data, 3.5%, they just work more per minute. I mean, it's quieter. So some of it was what more productive, you're just more productive sort of per hour. Is, Is then the rest of it travel? Yes. Well, mostly. So three and a half percent is your more productive per hour. Then the remaining nine and a half percent is you work more minutes. So just to be clear, these guys are shift workers. So they're doing like nine to five Monday to Friday. And of that remaining remaining nine and a half percent, about two thirds is they literally do their full shift. So they start at nine. They take less tea breaks and lunch breaks. You can see it in the day to their lunchtime, even like going to the toilet. Sounds ridiculous. But if you go to the toilet because you're drinking coffee five, six times a day, it takes you an extra three minutes, you know, in the office because it's big. That adds up to 15 minutes a day. So that, you know, that was another chunk. And then the remainder of it is sick days. So they're taking less sick days when they're working from home. I mean, this has quite dramatic and profound implications, doesn't it? Yeah, totally. So I think, you know, Coming back to COVID, there are like three re- regimes. There's pre-COVID where about 5% of working days were spent at home. So it's pretty rare. Only about 15% of people ever work from home. There's during COVID where the numbers... I have a big survey with the Bank of England and Nottingham University called the Decision Maker Panel. In fact, some of your listeners are probably in this in this survey, but it's about 40% of time right now is working from home. Post-COVID... As against 5% normally. Yeah, exactly. So during COVID, we've seen an eightfold increase in working from home. We then asked firms, uh, what do you plan post-COVID? And it drops back to 20%, but that's still a fourfold increase versus before. I think post-COVID is like the promised land of working from home. Uh, you know, right now it's horrendously difficult because of kids being around, because of, you know, sharing bedrooms, poor internet connections. So I think after this is all over, we're going to be this kind of nirvana of two or three days a week at home, two, three days a week in the office. The really interesting thing about this is there's there's that, and then and I, this is like me speaking personally. I don't know whether you've got data on this. I mean, I'm just very conscious that there will be meetings where I would never have imagined doing it via Zoom or video link before the crisis, and I will definitely think, well, there's just no point in that person <laughs> schlepping 45 minutes to come and see me, or me schlepping 45 minutes to see them. We can just do a video call. I mean. Presumably that could have massive implications around productivity and, and indeed carbon emissions and goodness knows what. Completely. Uh, there's like a huge number of upsides. Having talked to people that, so I think we want to look at like working from home two, three days a week. So you do need some interpersonal contact, but two, three days a week at home for sure. And then you can do all your meetings and lunches and coffees and the, you know, the Monday, Wednesday, Friday in the office and everything else you do at home and we can be more productive. Do you think out of the, people who weren't able to work from home at the start of this crisis there is a number of those roles that will be adaptable in the future you just i mean again i've been collecting a lot of data so only about 40 percent of people can work from home and you, you can imagine it's it's very skewed towards probably to be honest a lot for your listeners are like more educated people higher earners so if you've got a university degree you're much more likely it's there's a lot of jobs though that you just can't do it so if you look in the data a lot of food you know working in shops but even some very high skilled jobs high paid jobs like being a dentist or a surgeon or an airline pilot there's a bunch of stuff you can't do at home there are also a bunch of jobs that are somewhere in between so i think you know most jobs would be great to be able to do them two days at home and three days in the office so if you're a designer you could easily be in the office three days and have the other two at home so i don't think five days is you know, very few people want that, but most people seem to want two, three days at home. As I said, you like avoid the commute and you can also live a lot further away. 
you can, you know, be an hour and a half out of this of the office, which basically means you can live just about anywhere. But you are actually warning us that there's a kind of new class divide which is going to be thrown up by this. Yeah, I think there is a well, yeah, okay. On the negative side, there's potentially an increase in inequality. On the positive side, though, I think it would, could go a long way to address the affordability crisis. So, look, if you only work in the office three days a week, you probably don't need to live in the center of big cities. And I think the center of big cities are going to kind of reduce in popularity and it's going to make it cheaper and easier for people that do need to be in work in phase five days a week. A lot of what we've been talking about today is about how with with the reliance on digital connectivity uh th- there's this need to make sure there's um that people are connected equally but in terms of infrastructure in terms of devices do, do you envisage a, a situation whereby you could go for a job interview and it wouldn't just be about how qualified you are for the job but also checking your postcode to check you've got quick enough broadband so it's, it's a long-winded way of asking how, how important infrastructure is in this. It's a great point. I, uh, I've been advocating, like, you know, rolling out national broadband, the, the urban parts of the country. In fact, I now live in the US, where it's a, this is much more of an extreme issue, actually. If you look, the rural parts of America, and to some extent the UK, have been, like, passed by on broadband, and they've done really badly economically over the last 40 years. Central cities have done great. Out in the countryside has not done as well. And in, I think we really need to spend money on making sure the whole country is covered by broadband. You know, it's part of stimulus, but part of helping. You want to help people to lock down. And so, the, you know, the most important thing is they can actually work from home. So, yeah, exactly. You don't, I don't want to you know, be turned down because my postcode is the wrong postcode. So you completely need policy to roll out broadband. The strikes me is like the biggest no-brainer policy that comes out of this. I know that you you worked at the Treasury at the same time as Ed. I'm wondering what the two of you would have thought, uh, would think Gordon Brown would have made of working from home. I don't think it's the sort of Nick Bloom vision of working from home, working <laughs> for Gordon, actually. Uh, yeah, because I should that's point like, out, that's it's like doing a working when you don't commute. Actually, there's a kind of a big misunderstanding. The last thing we want to encourage people to do is do nine to five in the office and then work from home after. It was with Gordon, it was like you do your whole working day again, <laughs> having, having done a working day uh, uh, in the office. So I think that's not that's not the kind of uh, that's not what we're that's not what we're after. So, Nick, just to end, you know, people have been through terrible times, both in the US and UK and across the world and still are going through terrible times as a result of this crisis. You know, there is this phrase build back better Um, do you think this kind of idea of working from home can be part of that vision completely i'm so positive on working from home as a as a long run you know technology it's like the promised land after covid before covid it had a bad reputation during covid you know we're doing it but it's horrible with our kids around and full time and you know broken equipment post covid you can get it right uh our kids are back at school we can work from home two, three days a week. I think it would be fantastic. You know, more time, more productive, less commuting, less stress. I think it's a win-win. Okay, uh, Nick Bloom, thank you for the positivity. I hope we can come and visit you uh, in Stanford. Uh, thank, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. It's lovely to talk. Thanks. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Ed. So what did you think? Well, I want to live in Estonia. Or California, actually. I'll, I'll take Estonia. It sounds great. Yeah, I know it does, doesn't it? There's something really positive in what Helen said in that I think a year ago there would be a lot of people who are a bit sniffy about digital um, connectivity. They would see it as some kind of luxury and it's awful that it's taken something like a pandemic to change our minds. But I, I, I don't think many people would think like that now. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Just the 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 new thinking that the sort of pandemic has has forced on us i mean and 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 also that that it's sort of it's taken this terrible tragedy to make us think again about certain things so so you know the absolute centrality of digital connection and i thought what helen was saying was just actually incredibly sad about you know the terrible sort of the terrible things people have been going through and 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 that digital divide which you know it sounded like a theoretical thing before, didn't it? It sounded like a sort of a divide in terms of not basic necessities, but sort of not not luxuries, but somewhere in between. And now it's been about basic necessities, about whether your kids can be educated, whether you can 
work, you know, whether your kids are going to be going bananas because they've got nothing to do, you know, in lockdown. It's, it's about being some very, very basic things. So I thought that was really, um, really striking and, and, and therefore the importance of digital access. And then Nick's stuff about, um, you know, just the sort of potential of working from home. And, and, and I think that is the kind of, in a way, the running theme, isn't it, of lots of the episodes we're doing, which is, you know, even in the face of what the terrible things that have happened, or especially in the face of them, how do we build something better? Email us, reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast, or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to be Cheerful Podcast. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. And this week's cheerful person, I am incredibly excited because it's, it's my first time speaking to him. He has a new book detailing his life and career. It's called Unspeakable. And on the phone now, we are joined by John Burko. Hello. Jeff, good afternoon to you and thank you for having me on this podcast. Now, now a lot of people on the phone, they have their, their telephone voice and then you have the voice you just use around the house. You, you have a third voice, which is your House of Commons voice. Do, do, you, do you get to use that anymore? I can't say I do get to use that voice anymore. Your children are never on the receiving end of it. I'm not in the habit of calling order at home, no. <laughs> we did use all of us to shout order at some point in the home, but that was not at each other. It was when we were addressing our beloved cat. (laughs) We had a cat named by Twitter poll, Order. (laughs) That cat is not with us now. That cat has a new and safe home, and that's a great thing. But there is no reason now for the word order to be uttered in the Burko residence. And, and what, is, what a strange life it must be for you, having just spent a, a decade of your life living in the, the Palace of Westminster. Can you just tell us a little bit about the, the changes that you've experienced over the, and, the, and the readjustment over the last couple of months? First, we're now living in our own... Uh, don't get me wrong, it was an enormous privilege to serve as speaker, and I loved it from start to finish. And it was a privilege to live in the Palace of Westminster in Speaker's House, a grace and favour residence provided to the speaker. But of course, it wasn't ours. We didn't own it. The pictures weren't ours. The decor wasn't ours. The furniture wasn't ours. So the first great change is that we're now living in our own home, And, you know, that's a great joy. The second major change, I suppose, is that you have to become used to the withdrawal of your previous structure. That is to say, 
the pattern of commitments to which you'd become accustomed over a long period, certain fixed points in the day when I would be doing certain things, whether it be internal office meetings or chairing Prime Minister's questions. And obviously, by definition, all of that goes. John, I think it would be good to talk about the evolution of your career before we get onto your tenure um, as as speaker. Um, talk to us about how you first got into to politics. How, how did you come into a sort of political path? And uh, I, I think it was, I believe it was at university and then, and then a bit about your trajectory into the House of Commons. Well, it was really a combination of factors. So there was a negative and a positive. The negative was that I was experiencing the so-called winter of discontent, 1978 to 79, when the streets went unswept and sick people went untreated and dead people went unburied. And it was a pretty wretched winter for the country. I thought at the time, although in fact, in retrospect, I think Jim Callaghan was a very good and decent man who was coping as best he could in extremely difficult circumstances. But at the time, I thought, wow, this person is completely lost in the office of prime minister and the country is ungovernable. That was the negative that provoked an interest on my part in politics. And the positive was that I was at school in Finchley. I didn't actually live in Margaret Thatcher's constituency, but I was at school in her constituency. And towards the end of the 1979 election campaign, she came to speak at a school. I arranged to wangled my way to the front of the hall. I think I'd been listening on a tannoy outside the hall, but I wangled my way to the front of the hall at the end and got myself introduced to her and said that I'd much enjoyed her speech. And she said to me, are you a member of the Young Conservatives? And I said, well, Mrs. Thatcher, I'm not, but I have come to listen to you and been much inspired by what you've said. Well, you most assuredly should be, she said to me. A little while later, I did, and I joined the Young Conservatives, and then I got more involved at university. And tell us how you then found your way into Parliament, because I think it's important for our listeners. I hugely enjoyed my three years at university, and then after that, I got involved in local government. I became a local councillor in the London Borough of Lambeth, and was quite soon encouraged to apply for the Conservative parliamentary candidates list. Now, I didn't seriously expect to get into Parliament in my 20s, but you will yourself be well aware that a lot of people start at that point to have a go. And I stood for the Conservative Party in the 1987 election in Motherwell. And I then stood again in 1992 in Bristol. I resolved the next time in the run-up to 1997 to apply only for very, very, very safe Conservative seats. Because although I was then still very, very much a hardline, radical, Thatcherite Conservative, I nevertheless had a, a real apprehension, a premonition of electoral annihilation for the Conservative Party. I came to think that the Conservative Party was going not just to lose the 1997 election, but to be slaughtered. I was very fortunate in the end to be selected in February 1996 as the prospective Conservative parliamentary candidate for Buckingham. And at that point, I did feel that, barring some completely unforeseeable event or, God forbid, a by-election that I might lose, the chances were that I would get into Parliament at the subsequent election. And so fortunately for me, it proved Let's talk about your time as um, speaker. Sort of talk to us about what you think are the most important changes you made in your decade or so as speaker, your most important changes and actions. The biggest change in the chamber was the renaissance in urgent questions. Outside the chamber, on the parliamentary estate, the most significant developments were the establishment of a nursery, talked about for 40 years but never previously delivered, the creation of an education centre which is going to allow eventually 100,000 more young people to come to Parliament to learn about the journey from 
signing of the Magna Carta that the rights and responsibilities which the citizens will enjoy today. And I wanted to engender greater opportunities for women and ethnic minorities to occupy senior positions in the House and did that with appointments of Speaker's chaplains, the Speaker's council, and indeed the sergeant-at-arms. I appointed, for example, the first and second BAME sergeants-at-arms in the history of the House. So I make no apology for making some of those changes, some of which I was able to do on my own and others of which required support from across the House. But I just make the point that, in a sense, you can either be a reforming speaker or you can be an uncontroversial speaker, but you can't be both. And I made my bed and I was happy to lie in it. John, we asked you on because we're excited to speak to you and you're here as a guest, but I think it would be remiss of you, uh, remiss of us not to ask you about the bullying allegations. Um, when, when, when you hear the things that have been said, is, is there anything you recognise in your own behaviour that you, you would do differently? To be honest, I simply don't accept the charges or allegations that have been made. In many cases, several years after the alleged misconduct took place. Now I'm passionate I'm insistent, I pressed for change. I could sometimes be impatient if I thought the obstacles were unreasonably and unnecessarily being put in the way. But I look forward to clearing my name. I've never bullied anyone anywhere in any way at any time. And I think, well, frankly, I should be able to demonstrate that very, very, very clearly. And, and what are you most looking forward to doing in your new life how do you think you will be spending your time and what's the thing you're most enthusiastic about well i have been doing a lot of public speaking this would not entirely surprise you ed still less would it surprise my late father who said at the dinner table i think in 1975 john generally speaking is gen speaking <laughs> so you won't be surprised today that I've been doing a lot of public speaking to business organizations, lunches, dinners, conferences, one sort or another. I'm also doing some work as a part-time professor of politics at Royal Holloway College, London University. I'm really proud to be chancellor. This is an unpaid role, an honorary role, but a role that I cherish as chancellor of my alma mater, the University of Essex. And so I'm hoping to devote time to all of these things and perhaps also to watching more sport when, all being well, the crisis is overcome. Well, look, John Burkow, you, you've been a brilliant um, guest. Uh, good luck in uh, everything you're doing. Your book is unspeakable. Uh, it's strongly recommended. Uh, available at all good um, bookshops, or I suppose purchasable online uh, in today's um, climate. Uh, stay safe and thank and thank you so much for joining us. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, we're in the outro, and if people have thoughts about what they've heard on this week's episode uh, or ideas for future episodes, please do send your ideas in. We, we read all the emails. Go to our uh, website, cheerfulpodcast.com, and you can find out our, our fantastic newsletter um, written by Zoe uh, and and also all kinds of other stuff about this week's uh, show and, indeed, uh, previous shows. We'll, we will come back to some of our listener emails because I've had very nice emails about the Tooth Fairy, uh, Jeff. Not from the Tooth Fairy. Well, you don't know. I'm starting to worry about you. Emails from the Tooth Fairy, Chutney, the dog that only you can see. Well, Dylan's a real dog, and so is Chutney. Uh, right, I'd like to thank Annette Numa, Helen Milner, and Nick Bloom. And thanks to John Burko for telling us at length about his life. And he went, as we said, he went into it in much greater length than that is going to be a podcast in its own right. Emma Caution produces our podcast uh, with research from the birthday boy himself. Oh, uh, Joel Pierce. Happy Joel birthday. Pierce. What a guy. Happy birthday to you. 
Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Joel. Happy birthday to you. Oh, my stylophone playing isn't what it once was. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you. I think that was. I think that was a lovely, uh, a lovely birthday present for Joel. Yeah. We don't need to worry about sending him a cake now. No, I think that that was a wonderful rendition. Joel is supported by his work and uh, in the aforementioned newsletter by Zoe Gelber and Joe Kenyon. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made the idents. Ed Seed composed the music and the artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeffrey Lloyd. And these have been. Reasons to be cheerful. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.